From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. Facial plastic surgery is performed to reshape structures in the head and neck, typically the nose, ears, chin, cheekbones, and neckline. People seek this surgery for lots of different reasons. It may be a desire to reverse the signs of aging or to reconstruct the face after an injury, disease, or birth defect. On today's program, we'll discuss facial plastic surgery with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, is there a connection between menopause, hormones, and dementia? And we'll hear from one young patient living with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Ava and her physician discuss how Ava is part of pioneering research at Mayo Clinic. All that right after this. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, by one report, close to 18 million people underwent a cosmetic or a plastic surgical procedure in the year 2018. You know, that's about 5% of the population. Well, what is plastic surgery? Who's a candidate? And what should you know before you have it done? Are you trying to tell me something? Yeah. No, sure? not okay, at all. all right. no, not Join, you. Joining us in studio to talk about some of the more common cosmetic surgical procedures is the division chair of Facebook. Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in the Department of Otorhinolaryngology. Well, you said that so well. Oto ear, rhino nose, larynx throat. <laughs> That's right. At Mayo Clinic, Dr. Grant Hamilton. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hamilton. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Hamilton, good to have you. Thanks. So it's interesting. You're an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, but you also do plastic surgery? Yeah, and that is a little quirk of history in that modern plastic surgery is about 100 years old. It came out of World War I as a something that needed to be done. And at the time, it was general surgeons, otolaryngologists, and orthopedic surgeons who were tending to those more injuries. And over the last 100 years, facial plastic surgeons, by way of otolaryngology, uh, has become a specialty. And then plastic surgeons, historically, by way of general surgery, has become a specialty. And then orthopedic surgeons with their interest in hand surgery, uh, that niche has been carved out also. So that's how we got here. Um, the term cosmetic surgery makes sense. Reconstructive surgery makes sense to me. But it, plastic surgery has never made sense to me because you're, you're not putting plastic in anyone. That's right. You're and not that's, removing plastic from anyone. That's a common, that's a common question and a, a, and a common thing to be confused about because it sounds like putting plastic in. But the reason that plastic is called plastic is because it's moldable. And the Greek root plastikos means something that you can change the shape. And so plastic surgery doesn't have to do with plastic, the material, but plastic surgery has to do with changing the shape of something. And in the name of the operation, anything that ends in plasty means that you're changing the shape of it. Right. To shape or to mold yeah, is the word exactly. plasticos. Yep. So um, plastic surgery, and you confine your practice pretty much to facial plastic surgery. Correct. Are there some limitations to what you can do? Are there some dangers that people ought to be aware of? And with any real surgery, there are a risk of complications. But fortunately, in, in a proper candidate and someone who's healthy, the risk of that is, is low. But it's not zero. And what about uh, surgery compared to non-surgical procedures? And I'm thinking specifically of Botox versus a facelift. So Botox is extremely safe. The therapeutic window on Botox compared to most medicines or even things like water or 
beer or things that are very familiar like that, the therapeutic window, meaning the, the effective dose versus the toxic dose, the therapeutic window of Botox is extremely broad. So it's a very safe thing uh, to use and it wears off. So uh, after about three months or so, you don't have it anymore. Things like Botox or fillers are usually complementary to surgeries. Some people might start with them uh, and then kind of head into doing a more surgical uh, thing, but they often can go together. So it's not always one or the other. Uh, They kind of work hand in hand. Let's talk about some of the more common uh, procedures that you do. And I think maybe the most common one is a nose job. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a special name for that, a rhinoplasty. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think, third on the list of plastic surgical procedures that are done in this country behind breast augmentation and liposuction, right? So it's a pretty common procedure. It is pretty common. Tell us about it. Everyone's got a nose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to have a nose. That's that's the first requirement. Um, So there are multiple reasons that someone might want a rhinoplasty. Sometimes it's a consequence of something congenital, maybe... Uh, you know, as they hit puberty and grew up, uh, they got a big bump uh, on the bridge of their nose and they don't like that. Um, other times it's due to an injury. Somebody might have had an accident or something bumped their nose and it's off to one side and they don't like the way that that looks. And then because of its role in breathing and smelling, a lot of those um, aesthetic concerns can also have a sort of breathing or smell related concern along with it that uh, can also be helped with surgery. So it's not uncommon that I will operate on someone where part of it is to improve the breathing and part of the reason for the surgery is to improve the appearance. So those two things are very intimately related. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Well, what is plastic surgery? Who's a candidate? And what should you know before you have it done? Joining us in studio to talk about some of the more common cosmetic surgical procedures is the Division Chair of Facial, Plastic, and Reconstructive Surgery in the Department of Otorhinolaryngology at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Grant Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton, good to have you. Thanks. So it's interesting. You're an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, but you also do plastic surgery? Yeah, and that is a little quirk of history in that modern plastic surgery is about 100 years old. It came out of World War I as a, something that needed to be done. And at the time, it was general surgeons, otolaryngologists, and orthopedic surgeons who were tending to those more injuries. And over the last 100 years, facial plastic surgeons, by way of otolaryngology, uh, has become a specialty. And then plastic surgeons, historically, by way of general surgery, has become a specialty. And then orthopedic surgeons with their interest in hand surgery, uh, that niche has been carved out also. So that's how we got here. Um, the term cosmetic surgery makes sense. Reconstructive surgery makes sense to me. But it, plastic surgery has never made sense to me because you're, you're not putting plastic in anyone. That's right. You're and not removing plastic from anyone. That's a common, that's a common question and a, a, and a common thing to be confused about because it sounds like putting plastic in. But the reason that plastic is called plastic is because it's moldable. And the Greek root plastikos Uh means something that you can change the shape. And so plastic surgery doesn't have to do with 
plastic the material, but plastic surgery has to do with changing the shape of something. And in the name of the operation, anything that ends in plasty means that you're changing the shape of it. Right. To shape or to mold yeah, is the word exactly. plasticos. Yep. So um, plastic surgery, and you confine your practice pretty much to facial plastic surgery. Correct. Um, are there some limitations to what you can do? Are there some dangers that people ought to be aware of? Oh, absolutely. It's real surgery. And with any real surgery, there are a risk of complications. But fortunately, in, in a proper candidate and someone who's healthy, uh, the risk of that is, is low, but it's not zero. Let's talk about some of the more common uh, procedures that you do. And I think maybe the most common one is a nose job. Mm-hmm. And there's a special name for that, a rhinoplasty. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think, third on the list of plastic surgical procedures that are done in this country behind breast augmentation and liposuction, yes. right? So it's a pretty common procedure. It is pretty common. Tell us about it. Everyone's who's got a, a nose. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to have a nose. That's, yeah. that's the first requirement. Um, so there are multiple reasons that someone might want a rhinoplasty. Sometimes it's a consequence of something congenital, maybe... Uh, you know, as they hit puberty and grew up, uh, they got a big bump uh, on the bridge of their nose and they don't like that. Um, other times it's due to an injury. Somebody might have had an accident or something bumped their nose and it's off to one side and they don't like the way that that looks. And then because of its role in breathing and smelling, a lot of those um, aesthetic concerns can also have a sort of breathing or smell related concern along with it that uh, can also be helped with surgery. So it's not uncommon that I will operate on someone where part of it is to improve the breathing and part of the reason for the surgery is to improve the appearance. So those two things are very intimately related. Tell us a little bit about how you do that operation without being too graphic. <laughs> um, so there's different ways to do it. And, and what's interesting to me is, you know, we hear a lot about individualized medicine nowadays as being kind of the future. And I think rhinoplasty is probably the original individualized medicine or surgery because there aren't two of them that are the same. So it's more about principles and applying those principles to the needs of that individual patient. Um, but in general, there are two two primary approaches that you can take to operating on the nose. One is an endonasal approach, and that's where you just use some incisions inside the nostrils that don't show up. Uh, and the other is an external uh, or open approach, and that's where you combine those incisions inside the nose with a little one that goes across what's called the columella between the nostrils. And by combining those incisions, you can lift up the skin and then have direct vision on the structures uh, underneath. So you actually lift up the nose, do the procedure, put the nose back. Yeah, lift up the skin, kind of like yeah. opening the hood on a car. You can kind of okay. get a, get a view into the into the engine there, and then you you lower the hood and and uh, you have a couple of stitches down there. What percentage of them are done for cosmetic reasons because the patient doesn't like the way that it looks versus they have to have it done so that they can have a better working nose? Um, it, it's hard for me to give you numbers on that because of all that overlap. Mm -hmm. So if I gave you those numbers, they'd probably add up to more than 100% <laughs> because it may be 70% of people have a concern about how it looks and probably another 70% of people have a concern with how it breathes. Uh, so I don't know if that makes any sense. But All right, let's talk about uh, facelift, ritidectomy. Yeah. Why do, why do we get wrinkles? Two main reasons. Well, maybe three reasons, I suppose, but two that people have some control over. Uh, the one that's harder to control is genetics, uh, but the two that people have a lot of control over are smoking and sun exposure. So uh, smoking really, really changes the character of the skin. Um, 
your skin has a couple of really important structural proteins in it. Uh, most people have heard of collagen. That's what gives it most of its strength. But the other one is elastin, and that does really what it sounds like. It's the elastic protein that helps it snap back. And so when we're younger, there's a lot more elastin that's working better in the skin, and so it pulls things tight and smooth. I tell people when they get older and the elastin doesn't work so well, it's a little bit like going from kind of a spandex kind of fabric to linen. <laughs> and you can pull on the linen, but the second that you let go, it doesn't quite, it's still not smooth. Um, and it's just because the elastin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us how you do this, that operation, facelift. Facelift, and that's one where uh, the name isn't quite as accurate as I would like. It sounds like you're operating on the entirety of the face, but a facelift is really the lower third of the face and the neck. So it's a little bit misleading. Sometimes people will point to their forehead and say, I need a facelift, but that's not the right <laughs> operation. A facelift has uh, some incisions that go in front of and then around and behind the ear on each side. And then you can lift up the skin and lift up some of the deeper structures under the skin and you can re resuspend them and kind of defy gravity by doing that. So pull have, everything up, stretch it out. Then you have scars on you the sides scars. of your face. That is true. That's, that's what I've never understood about this. That's but they're better? barely visible, right? Yeah. So that's the nice thing about it is if is that true or is it this? I'm just seeing oh, people they don't heal correctly because I, I I don't understand. Well, you bring up a really important point. <laughs> like, why do you want to have that? I mean, it's a trade off, I guess. So my goal. Is to, so it's a weird thing that my goal if, is to do something that you can't tell that it was done, mm -hmm. which if you think about it, that sort of is counter to, you know, you'd want to sort of say, hey, look at these good results or something like that. But, but if, I, if, if I can do my job like I want to, people might just ask someone who's had something done, you know, wow, you know, did you get a haircut? Or they know something's different, mm -hmm. but they can't quite say what. If someone has an injury and gets a scar, you don't have any say in where that scar is. And so we see those scars. But if we can plan the scar, we can put it in places that we can camouflage it and make it less visible. If you look, you'll see it, uh, but it shouldn't be something that jumps out at you. So what you're mentioning is, yeah, you know, I've seen these people with scars. Well, unfortunately, those are the ones that you're noticing. There are hopefully people who you it never occurred to you to notice them because they were so well camouflaged. Those are the ones that are done by Dr. Hamilton. <laughs> well, I just want to <laughs> know that <laughs> because I, to me, I would never want to consider this because I always think that it, people, I just don't understand. It looks uncomfortable. A person looks uncomfortable to me. Yeah. So I'm thinking, um, is that because they just have had too much done Sometimes. or they had a surgeon who was going too far, um, just a poor surgeon. Because I, I, I know there has to be good cosmetic surgery yep. that I just don't notice because it was done well. Yeah. In my opinion, <laughs> a little can go a long way. Um, and I, I tell people when it comes to things like a facelift, there, some people say, I want to look younger. And the first thing I'll say to them is, you know, that's kind of the wrong axis. I can't make you look younger but I might be able to make you look better, but that's a different sort of measurement. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes if that's maybe not some, maybe not the patient's goal, you know, they may have one thing done and then there's always a tallest blade of grass, you know? And so then they say, well, now that I've had that done, now, now this is the thing that bothers me. Part of my job is also to keep people out of trouble. And so I tell people, you know, if you've got a couple of wrinkles here or there, you've earned them, you know, that makes you look 
your age. Sophisticated. And Tracy, you don't need a facelift anyway, so you don't have to worry <laughs> about it. But it does bring up the point. What question should you ask your surgeon before you have this done? Am I a good candidate for surgery? How many of these do you do? What are some of the benefits that I can expect, realistic benefits um, for things like, you know, for example, you mentioned scars. If someone's expecting to have no scars, they're not going to be happy no matter how good it looks. What are some of the drawbacks or risks? Um, that's also really important to know before undertaking something that is essentially irreversible. One other uh, procedure I want to ask you about, because it's fairly common, is a blepharoplasty. Yeah. Tell us what that is. And, and I think sometimes insurance might even pay for it, right? Yeah. So a blepharoplasty is surgery on the eyelids. Um, when it's done in the upper eyelids, it's usually due to having a little excess skin that can interfere sometimes with uh, the peripheral vision. So the skin kind of hangs down over the lashes and you, you kind of walk around and it's like you've got a visor on and you can't, can't quite see up here. So in those cases, we can uh, do visual field testing. And in, in some cases, uh, insurance will pay for that because it blocks the vision. In the lower eyelid, the more common concern is maybe a little extra skin, but oftentimes people will have a little fat that is normal to have around the eye because it cushions the eye, but it can kind of bulge out a little bit and it makes what people refer to as you know having bags under their eyes. So you can do surgery on the upper or lower eyelids to reposition or remove a little bit of that fat and then remove a little bit of the excess skin and kind of tighten and resuspend things. So uh, if your eyelids interfere with your peripheral vision, insurance might pay for it, but they wouldn't pay to get rid of the bags. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> the for a, for a traditional blepharoplasty, uh, I would have a hard time thinking of a time that insurance paid for the lower lids to be done. All right. We've got some myth or matter of facts for you. All right. First of all, only women get plastic surgery. Oh, absolutely a myth. Absolutely. Really? So what percent Break of your down, practice? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Break it down for us. Uh, I'd say about between a third or so uh, of my patients are men. And one more. You can't have facial plastic surgery if you're too old. No, not true. So uh, I worry much more about someone's state of health than I do about their age. No. I'm thinking about when we've interviewed surgeons about gastric bypass. And when a patient is getting ready to do that, they have a lot of work beforehand, um, including with dietitians and with psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, is there sometimes that you send a patient in that direction before you start doing a surgical procedure for them? Occasionally. Um, there are some... Uh, what we call dysmorphic disorders, where people have a distorted sense of self. And sometimes those can manifest in eating disorders, for example. Uh, But there are others where people might feel like, you know, their face is very asymmetric, but you almost can't perceive that. Mm -hmm. And these can be very serious problems because they'll seek out surgery to have this problem fixed, but there's no surgery that will actually fix that non-surgical problem. And so they often don't get treatment for a long time and they're quite unhappy for a long time. Uh, And so I try to identify those patients and say, listen, you have a real problem, but it's just not a surgical problem, but I'd like to help you with it. And let me put you in touch with the people who can actually make this better. Well, no question about it. Facial plastic surgery becoming more and more common in the United States among both women and men. Uh, and who doesn't want to look better and younger? Yep. <laughs> Our thanks to facial plastic surgeon Dr. Grant Hamilton. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this.
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we know that women are more at risk for dementia than are men, specifically Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, 65% of people who have dementia are women. Now, we also know that age is the main risk factor, and we know that women live longer than men. It makes so, sense, then. It does make a lot of sense it, it, that women truly have more dementia than men. But it doesn't completely explain the difference. We don't fully understand why women are more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than men. But one of the main theories has to do with horm- the hormone estrogen. Well, of that course makes it sense would. too. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of controversy regarding whether hormones to treat menopausal symptoms might increase or decrease the risk of developing dementia. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic neuroradiologist, Dr. Kajal Kantarsi. Welcome to, see, uh, welcome to the program. It's good to see you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Dr. Cantarsi, you're not just a radiologist, you're a neuroradiologist. So that means you concentrate on the brain? That's true. And using all modalities? That's also true. Um, My research involves MRI as well as PET imaging. So I look at the brain with both of those modalities. And there's some controversy regarding whether or not hormone replacement therapy leads to dementia in women. How long has that controversy been brewing? It's been a long time. Uh, There was a nationwide hormone therapy study back in 1990s funded by the National Institutes of Health. It was a nationwide study that enrolled more than 100,000 women looking at whether hormone therapies have any effect on dementia risk. Now, that study was uh, looking at women in their 60s. So hormone therapies were given to women who were generally older than women who are transitioning into menopause, which happens to be in early 50s. Now, in that study, uh, it was found that the oral form of estrogen and progesterone increased the risk of dementia in those women if given during 60s. Now, um, of course, this um, finding was surprising because some of the animal studies and previous human studies have have suggested that perhaps hormone therapies and estrogen have a beneficial effect on the brain. And this led to some theories that possibly um, estrogen given during the menopausal transition when women are in their 50s may have a beneficial effect. But if it's given at later in life uh, to women who are in their 60s, there may be some adverse effects because the brain is older, the vascular system is older, and the effects of estrogens may be detrimental. Well, and you have, uh, the woman has most likely gone through menopause at that point. Absolutely. So they have not been exposed to estrogen for a while, and then they're all of a sudden receiving hormone therapy. So um, this led to some studies, again, nationwide uh, multi-center studies looking at whether estrogen or hormone therapies given during menopausal transition would have a beneficial or a risky effect. So... And how did you become, how does a neuroradiologist become involved in this controversy? That's a really good question. Well, um, Mayo was one of the sites for those studies. And um, I, I am interested in what's going on in the brain. It's imaging provides us a window into what happens in terms of brain pathology, such as those that cause dementia. So you can actually detect dementia on a brain scan? 
Yes, certain aspects of dementia. For example, we have scans, PET scans, to detect Alzheimer's pathology before it even manifests itself. So imaging provides us an early detection tool before people start showing symptoms of dementia. So in younger women, actually, imaging may be a better tool to detect what's going on than just cognitive testing and trying to understand the manifestations. So you were in a position where you could potentially help answer this question. That's true. That's why I entered this field um, maybe 15 years ago, I would say. So tell us about the study and what did you find? So this was an ongoing study. We started when women have started the hormone therapies and placebo, of course, and we have followed them and uh, with imaging and cognitive studies for almost seven years. And what we found was there was no effect in cognitive function, which is good news. Um, it wasn't beneficial or risky during this short term of seven years. Um, however, we did find some changes on brain imaging. For example, the oral form, which was used in the Women's Health Initiative, did you know, initiate the occurrence of certain lesions in the brain that may be linked to vascular uh, problems and such as the thrombogeneity of hormones. And that was only present in women who took the oral form of hormone therapies. However, this did not relate to cognitive function. We also saw that in women who took the transdermal or patch form of estrogen have um, preserved some of their brain volumes compared to women who took placebo. So the region of the brain that was preserved was the brain, the function of that region was um, uh, attention and also decision making. So bottom line, what, what have your studies, uh, what have they revealed about an association between hormone replacement therapy and dementia? Now, um, we did not find any effect on cognitive function in the short term, but these brain changes may be a early sign of future risk or benefit that we don't know. So what we're doing right now is to follow these women even further into their 60s to determine whether their cognitive function is affected from hormone therapies, good or bad. So um, the, this time window is really important because now we have uh, 12 years of follow-up on our uh, participants, which will help us understand not just these brain changes even more, which may happen to continue, but also to understand the effects on cognitive function and dementia risk, because we're now looking at our participants in, at an older age. What are the, how will the findings of your study affect patient treatment for both men and women? Will it make a difference for men? I'm not sure if it would make a difference for men okay. because we are studying women mm -hmm. for this study. Uh, obviously, uh, we're studying women who are undergoing menopause. But for women, I think it will be important for them to make decisions on whether or not to use hormone therapies for their menopausal symptoms. Some women need hormone therapies because their menopausal symptoms are quite severe. 
and their physicians are willing to prescribe Mm -hmm. these hormone therapies. This gives them some relief that perhaps in the short term, the cognitive function would not be affected as much. And the, the one form of hormone therapy, the estrogen patch that we studied, appears to have some uh, beneficial protective effects on the brain, which we don't know whether is important or not at this time. Um, but at least we know it doesn't cause harm. All right. Well, the question is, does hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women increase their risk for dementia? It's controversial, but the Mayo Clinic studies, at least so far, show that there's no evidence that hormone replacement therapy in women leads to changes in the brain that are linked to dementia. Fair statement? That's true. I would say so. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic radiologist, Dr. Kajal Kantarsi. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The word congenital means present at birth, and congenital heart defects are the most common type of birth defects, affecting nearly 1% of births each year in the United States. And that means about 40,000 babies who are born with a structural heart defect every year in the United States. Joining us in studio is one of those 40,000 babies. A young girl who was born with a severe heart defect called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And she is here with a specialist in the treatment of congenital heart defects, Dr. Tim Nelson. Welcome, Ava. Welcome to the radio show. Thank you. And Dr. Nelson, too. Great to be here. Welcome to both of you. Ava, how nice of you to join us. Mm-hmm. Is this the first time you've been on the radio? Mm-hmm. And what about YouTube? You know um, you're going to be on YouTube? Yeah. So you're in, uh, what, first grade? Mm-hmm. And what do you like to do when you're not in school? Um, I like to play school, play doctor, and in school we do, like, science and math and reading. Since this all started when you were born, you've had a lot of different doctors, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Who's your favorite? Dr. Nelson. Oh, look at well, that. Did you say the right thing. <laughs> So, Dr. Nelson, tell us, she was born with a a defect called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Explain that to us. Yeah, so Ava is one of our special kids that is born with a single ventricle. Um, Part of her heart wasn't uh, fully functioning when she was born, and so it required surgery to do reconstructive surgery to make her heart work because it only had one side of the heart that was, was functional. and so, so there should be four, but she had three? That's correct. Okay. So the two main pumping chambers on the heart, on the bottom, the left side, the main pumping chamber, uh, she didn't have that was strong enough when she was born. So the other pumping chamber, the right ventricle, has been uh, surgically put in position to do the work of her entire body. And as you can see, um, those surgeries have done remarkable for Ava. Did you know that she had this uh, defect before she was born? Yes. And so when she was in her mommy's belly, uh, the ultrasounds are able to detect this condition because the left side of the heart is not fully developed. And so that allows us to do all the surgical planning on the day that she was born. And Ava had a very special first day. She um, actually had procedures on the day she was born um, because of her special condition. And so we had a lot of planning that went into that day when she was born. She had surgery the first day she was born. 
Correct. So Ava was in a special situation where she had a restrictive ASD or the side of the heart where she's dependent on blood coming through to make her single ventricle work was too small. And so she actually had to be taken to surgery right away to be able to make that larger. And so that was actually an extra step that um, not all kids with HLHS have to go through. Uh, So she's been through many, many procedures. And something that's interesting, I just found out when you arrived because he was along with you, you have two brothers, one who is your twin brother, and his heart was A-OK when you guys were born, correct? Yes. And you have a little brother who has got the same heart condition that you do. Yes. And so did he already have a surgery too? Um, yeah, he had three open heart surgeries, and I've only had two. Hmm. You are probably a great big sister to be able to tell him what's going to happen so that he doesn't get scared. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any of those surgeries? My second surgery was probably maybe the day I was born or a couple of days after that. Let's find out. Is that correct, Dr. Nelson? Yep. She said multiple ones. What, when was the last one you remember? What do you remember about a procedure? That you get put under stegia. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing, isn't it? You're asleep when all that happens. <laughs> and then you wake up and everybody's happy to see you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Is your heart okay right now? Do you feel like you can run and play and do all the stuff you want to yeah, do? Yeah, but I do get tired, so I don't run a lot. So how do you make the decision, Dr. Nelson, whether or not she will need another surgery? And is it true that prior to the development of these surgical procedures to repair the heart, the only treatment for a child like this was a heart transplant? Yes. So most of us sitting here today, if we were born with the special heart that Ava was born with, we would not be sitting on the show today. It was only until after 1980 that if you were born that you had the surgeries to do uh, the palliative reconstructive surgeries, the three surgeries that Ava has had done to make her circulation work. Has only been from the 1980s on. To this day, as you can see with Ava, she's a great example. We do remarkable. Uh, many kids have a fantastic outcome, and they can do all the things that most kids can do in school. And maybe they get a little tired, but they, they're, they're great, energetic, and big role models for all of us. Yeah, I don't really see you uh, not being energetic. You, pretty, you seem like you are on the go all the time. Yes. Okay, so there's some research that you're doing on children like Ava. Is that right? Yes. And so Ava's a very lucky kid. Um, So when do she might need another surgery? Um, There's always the talk of possible transplant when you have a single ventricle kid. Um, And so all of these possibilities are out there. And not everybody is as lucky as Ava. So because of that, we have a research team now that's grown across the country that's really focused on how do we invent the next therapies? How do we create new products to make all the kids that were born like Ava as healthy and active as Ava's today. And that's the focus of what our our research and innovation team is working on on a daily basis. Is it a genetic type of research or what are you looking at? Sure. And, uh, you know, her family is an interesting case when it comes to genetics. Um, And so her brother has the condition. Uh, This is not... But not her twin brother. Not her twin brother, but her, um, her younger brother does. And so we are beginning to understand with her family and with others what causes the genetic makeup of this condition. And as we sit here today, we have a very good idea of what's happened sitting next to me genetically to cause this. Um, As we continue to do that with all families, we're beginning to understand how to not only identify it, but more importantly, how to predict 
who's going to do well like Ava and who might not do well. And the people that are predicted not to do as well are the ones that also need cell-based therapies, um, mechanical solutions, other products that may be necessary to get them to the point where Ava has been able to do on her own. Are you working with stem cells at all? I mean, will, is there the potential there to someday actually grow a left ventricle for Ava? Yes. Um, so we have some really creepy, cool stuff going on in the lab that we're super excited. Ava's been in the lab and has seen it firsthand for herself. Uh, so, of course she has. Of course she has. <laughs> um, when we use umbilical cord blood, which I'd like to say Ava was the first kid we ever collected umbilical cord blood on to do our research. She mm. was the first kiddo that we ever did that on for an HLHS baby at the time. So she's a true pioneer when it comes to research and innovation. Hey, do you understand what Dr. Nelson is saying, that you are part of, he's not only your doctor, I mean, he's studying you. Mm-hmm. Do you like being part of that research? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you? That other kids are part of it, but I was the first one, and my brother Myers was the third one. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Dr. Nelson, does working with uh, lovely young children like Ava, does that inspire you? She's our superhero, as I've said before. Um, it's, uh, it's people like Ava that really defines why we do what we do. Um, we not only have used the cord blood on, on Ava and Miles and, and other families where we're now injecting them into the heart at the time of their open heart surgeries. We're planting fertilizer into their heart to make their hearts bigger and stronger. But we also are going all the way to bioengineering new hearts. And as you mentioned, the technology has now evolved since the last time we've talked that we're growing about a half of Ava's heart um, in cells in the lab right now in big spinner cultures. And that starts from a piece of skin biopsy that we've collected from Ava and her family. And we can engineer that into beating, contracting heart muscle the cells that beat in her heart that are genetically identical to her heart. And we're on a, a work path with the FDA right now to get to the point where we can launch the first clinical trial where we actually start planting those seeds back into patients' hearts to make their heart bigger, better, and stronger. So the technology of the first generation of cell therapies, we've treated over 70 patients in these clinical trials across the nation. We're super proud of that. Um, but we also are now working towards new product development that can really fundamentally transform our surgical approach to these kids as we go forward. We need all kids with this diagnosis to live up to Ava's expectations. And you're growing a new heart for Ava in your lab. We have grown cells from families like Ava's, uh, from kids like Ava. Um, we have many of them going on, and, and that's how we learn how to perfect these systems on a daily basis. Wow. Pretty incredible. Congenital heart defects affect 40,000 babies every year in this country. But thanks to major advances in care, the outlook for babies born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome well, it's better than ever, and it sounds like it could be even better in the mm -hmm. future. Ava, you are terrific. Mm -hmm. Thanks and, for being here. Yeah, yeah what, what do we say, Ava? Go. Go Hawkeye. There you oh, go. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Our thanks to Ava Weidel and Dr. Tim Nelson. Appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again, Ava. Thank you. And that's our, you want to say this? And that's our program for this week. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, thank you for listening.
This is Tracy McRae from Mayo Clinic Radio with a reminder about what we know about the COVID-19 virus's ability to survive on common surfaces. Here's Dr. Greg Poland, an infectious disease expert and head of Mayo Clinic's vaccine research group. Anything that somebody who is infected touches, the virus can survive on that surface. It looks like plastic, stainless steel tend to be surfaces where it lasts longer. All it says to us is, you've got to practice good hand etiquette and sanitation. So you pump your gas, you sanitize your hands. You go out to shop, you don't touch your face, you don't come into your car until you've sanitized your hands. When washing your hands, either warm or cold water works. After applying and lathering the soap, rub your hands vigorously for at least 20 seconds before rinsing. Alcohol-based hand sanitizers are an acceptable alternative when soap and water aren't available. For more information, visit mayoclinic.org slash COVID-19.